Good morning. Let's turn our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Good that Pastor and Melanie and the kids can have a little break today. And this week, I think, the pastor was doing some things necessary for us. So, wonderful that they could do that. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, we'll, we'll, we're looking at verses 21 and 23, but let's go back to 20. So, uh, 2, 20 through 23, let's read that, shall we? Verse 20, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? What value? What credit? You deserve what you're getting if you're beaten or, or because, you, because of sin. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Verse 21. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was the seed found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Being dedicated to Christ is beginning to cost us. A Christian policeman is not promoted because he will not allow himself to be corrupted. An executive sees younger, less qualified men rise the corporate ladder past him because as a Christian, he refuses to offer his visiting out-of-town clients the kinds of sensual pleasures they enjoy. Just take them where they want to go. No. A Christian factory worker is pressured by his union steward because his speed and competence on the job reduces the opportunity for overtime for other workers. I've seen that happen. Slow down. Don't work so hard. A 13-year-old boy is berated and belittled before his classmates by one of his teachers because like his Christian parents, he believes there are only two genders, male and female. A Christian coach in a public high school is suspended because she refuses to allow a transgender female to join her girls' swim team. Christians are represented by Hollywood and the media as unintelligent and hypocritical bigots. And that's happening more and more. Being dedicated to Christ is beginning to cost us, and that's all right. God often uses that kind of thing to purify the church. Those who are simply claiming to know Christ are quickly weeded out, and those who truly do and are willing to follow him come what may, they're strengthened in their faith in the midst of that kind of situation. In 1 Peter 2, 21-23, Peter assumes that we, God's people, will suffer for our faith. And then he tells us how to face that suffering. So he's moving from any kind of general idea of suffering to suffering for the sake of Christ. That's where we're going in this text. That's what this text speaks of. And the whole point of this text is simply this. We are called to suffer like Christ when we are suffering for Christ. We're called to suffer like Christ. And he gives us, describes his example here, when we are suffering for him. 
Let's pray and we'll look at this text this morning. We thank you, Father, for, for our Savior who suffered for us in a myriad of ways. Not just the cross. Certainly the cross was the pinnacle of his, of his agonies and his suffering, but he suffered many things on our behalf in his earthly life, culminating in his excruciating murder on the cross. And all of his suffering was for us and was an example and a testimony to us. We thank you as well, Father, for all those Christians who through the centuries have suffered for the name of Christ and done so valiantly with courage and have done so in a way that pleases you. Father, our world has been, our world in this country has been fairly tame in regard to this kind of thing, but that's changing now. And taking a stand for Christ is beginning to cost us. So, Father, we ask that you'd help us to glean much from this text as we prepare for what may come, because our world is increasingly hostile to Christ, and therefore to those who stand for the things of Christ. Bless our time now, Father. Use this portion of your word to minister to our hearts, to challenge us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In verse 21, we're told very plainly that when we're suffering for the cause of Christ, the focus must be Christ. Keep your eyes on Christ. So let's read verse 21 again. For to, to this, i.e. suffering, to this, to suffering, you've been called because, here's the reason why, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that, the purpose of all that, so that you might follow in his steps. Let's quickly examine verse 21, then we'll, we'll move forward. First, Peter states that believers are called to suffer. Now in this book, in 1 Peter, Peter highlights the fact that Christians are called to many things. We've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light, chapter 2, verse 9. We've been called to return blessing for cursing, chapter 3, verse 9. We've, uh, we've been called to, uh, uh, to God's eternal glory in Christ, chapter 5, verse 10. So this is phraseology Peter, Peter uses. You've been called to this. And one of the things you've been called to is to suffer for the sake of Christ. Hebert says this. The verb called in this, in this verse looks back to the time of the reader's conversion and implies that God himself acted in calling them to such a life. When you were converted, when God called you to himself and saved you, he called you to this kind of life, a life of struggle and suffering for the things of Christ, for the sake of Christ. He goes on, in calling them, God gave them a new, a new dignity, to suffer as his people, and a new motivation to follow the example of their Savior. The New Testament speaks of this calling to suffer many, many times. John 15, 18 through 20, and we've looked at this text before. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you, Jesus says. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, and they did, they will Persecute you, not they may, or it's possible. They did persecute me, they will persecute you. In 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 2 through 4, 
Paul states, We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one may be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. We're destined to suffer for the sake of Christ. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand, we told you this over and over, that we were to suffer afflictions just as has come to pass and just as you know. We've told you this before. This is no secret. We haven't hidden it from you. By the way, when someone comes to Christ, when you give someone the gospel, be sure to talk to them about Christ and the following Christ and the life of following Christ. We don't hide the fact that if you love Christ in this world, in a Christ-hating world, things aren't always going to be easy. Paul states in 2 Timothy 3, 10-12, You, however, have followed my teaching... You have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord, from, from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Again, this is, this is an all thing. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering... What suffering? Satan's attacks. Satan is roaming the earth, chewing up and spitting out God's people. The same kinds of suffering that are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. In other words, everyone in the brotherhood is going to experience this. So we're called to suffer. And the Bible says it over and over and over in different ways. And that's not a secret. That's not a family secret. We all know it. It's all in the open. We all, we're all going to experience it. The second thing Peter tells us Here is why we are called to suffer. Suffer. Verse 21 again. Because Christ also suffered for you, for God's people, for us. Here's why we're called to suffer. Because Christ suffered. Suffering was part of the life of Christ and his imitators and followers of him. It will be part of our lives as well. Clearly, what we've just read. Notice what Peter wrote here, by the way, verse 21. Notice he didn't write, for he died for you, which maybe we would have expected. For to this you have been called, because Christ also died for you, which is a common phrase. He doesn't say that. He says, suffered for you. This is not just his death upon the cross he's referring to. He's referring here to all the suffering and trials and struggles Jesus experienced while on this earth. His point is that All of the earthly trials Jesus faced, all of the ridicule, all of the the false accusations and humiliations, all of the enticements of Satan, and all of the pain following his arrest and culminating in his brutal and excruciating murder on the cross, we suffer for him because he bore all of that. So here's one of the greatest motivations to suffer for Christ in a world that hates him. Here's one of the greatest motivations. Christ suffered 
all that he did for me and for you. And the least I can do is live for him in this world and glorify him in the suffering that I'm going to face because of my stand for Christ. The least we can do. This is the primary motivation for our suffering for him. He suffered for us. Third thing Peter states here is that by his suffering, Christ left us an example. He states that in verse 21 again. Uh, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. This word example is just a really interesting word. This is the only time in, in the New Testament that you find this word. In classical Greek, it referred to the process of taking a piece of paper with writing on it or pictures on it and taking another piece and putting it over the top and tracing the, 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 the page underneath. This was a method that they used often in teaching children their, their alphabet. Put a piece of paper on top of a piece of paper where the alphabet's, and they, they trace the alphabet. Well, I have a great memory as a kid relating to this kind of thing. My Aunt Harriet is this tall, little bitty. When I say Aunt Harriet, you can almost picture what an Aunt Harriet would look like. She's an Aunt Harriet. She lived quite close to us. I loved her. She was wonderful. And when I was 8, 9, 10, she'd invite me over for the day, and I'd go over to her house, and she'd let me mow her lawn with her real mower. Do you know what a real mower is? You probably don't. There's no, it's not gas. It's, it's, uh, you push it, and the, the blades go this way. And if the grass isn't too long or too thick, you can actually cut a lawn that way. And she'd invite me over to, to push the real mower. Come on, Scott, over help me with my lawn. Like, yeah, this eight-year-old kid's going to really help her. I'd push it a little bit and get a little bit done, and I'm exhausted because I'm eight and I'm lazy. And then she'd have me come in the house, and she made the best chocolate chip cookies you've ever had in your life. So I would mow, I would mow for ten minutes, maybe, and go in the house, and there were chocolate chip cookies. And then I would trace. She had coloring books. You know, mountains and flowers and trees and Spider-Man and Batman. And I don't know if they do this anymore, if they even have this, but she had tracing paper, sheets of tracing paper. Rita's nodding her head. I don't know if they have that anymore. You take the tracing paper, you put it over the, the graphics, the, the pictures of Batman and Robin, you know, pow, zam, bapo, and whatever, all the, all the words. And you'd pin down the four corners, and then you'd trace that picture out. And I'd go home stuffed with chocolate chip cookies with a handful of tracing paper of all the stuff I'd done that day. That is exactly this word, to trace out something. We are the tracing paper, and Jesus Christ is the pattern to be traced when we're talking about suffering for the cause of Christ. When it comes to suffering, we are responsible to trace him line by line, feature by feature. We're called to think and act and speak just as Christ would if he were in that situation. So think of yourself. Here is Christ and here is me and I'm the tracing paper and I'm to mimic everything he would do in this situation that I'm in right now. Peter elaborates on this idea by telling us the purpose of Christ's example so that, verse 21 again, 
so that you might follow in his steps. This word, follow, it actually means to follow after closely. It speaks of being on the heels of someone. You're basically watching their their steps in front of you, and you're on the heels of the person in front of you. That's the idea here. This isn't a following from a distance. You don't have binoculars in your hands. He's up there somewhere. It is lockstep following. That is the idea. Folks, the quality of our discipleship The quality of our discipleship, of our following of Christ, will be manifest most when we're suffering for his cause. When to do the right thing because you're a Christian will cost you. When you do that thing in a way that pleases God, when you follow him as you should, lockstep behind you, doing just what he would do in the same situation. That kind of following will bring trouble. And that demonstrates the the quality of your discipleship. Am I going to follow Christ in this? Maybe not. Maybe we'll just skirt off the path for a little while. Because to to do what's right in this situation is going to cost me dearly. No, we lockstep right behind him. The question remains then, how did Jesus Christ respond to suffering? What pattern has he left us to trace? Uh, What path has he left us to follow? Peter describes Christ's pattern and path now in verses 22 and 23. So, we're to follow him. What does that mean? First of all, our suffering should always be undeserved. Verse 22, the very beginning. He committed no sin. Our suffering for him should always be undeserved. If anyone knew the quality of Christ's life, it was Peter. Peter watched him intently for three years and and knew how Jesus lived, how he spoke, knew everything about him. If anyone knew the quality of Christ's life, it was Peter. And as God in the flesh, he could not, and we know he did not, sin. He knew no sin. Theologians call this the impeccability of Christ. In regard to sin, our Savior was faultless, flawless, spotless, unblemished, untarnished, irreproachable. He could not sin. He was God in the flesh. He could not sin, and he did not sin. We're told over and over. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Christ, the one who knew no sin, who never sinned, was made to be sin. The Father poured upon him all the sins of the human race and then poured upon him the wrath that we deserve. He became sin in the eyes of God. God viewed him as sin for that time upon the cross. But he knew no sin. He had never sinned. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been enticed as we are, yet without sin. 1 John 3, 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So the bottom line is this. He was never guilty of wrongdoing. Every thought, motive, word, action was pure and righteous. So Peter's making crystal clear here that whatever suffering Jesus experienced was undeserved. Because every word was perfect. And every action was 
pristine, unmixed with any kind of wrong motives or any kind of sin. So everything he suffered was undeserved. And that's the point for us, folks. Our suffering for Christ must be undeserved. Folks, this is a point we need to ponder. I know of professing Christians, professing Christians, who are avoided and or mistreated by unsaved people, not because they're godly, but because they're ungodly in their walk. I know of professing Christians who use Christ as an excuse for being judgmental, condescending, and unkind. And they wonder why people don't like them. People at work or in their neighborhood don't like them. Maybe mistreat them. Because they're condescending. Because they, they, they think they're better. I'm a Christian. There are people like that out there. I hope it's not any of us. Because the bottom line is, we know how bad we are. If you're a Christian, you know how bad you are. And there is no pride in that. It's humility. I know of some who are complainers and busybodies and gossips. If you're one of those people and you're mistreated because of it, you deserve it. And that's the point. Christ's suffering was all without sin. Let's make sure ours is. I know of others who in the name of Christian liberty think, value, speak, and act just like unbelievers. I have liberty. And they live just like unbelievers. And the unbelievers know a little bit about Christianity and they know that God is holy and Christians are supposed to be holy. And they look at these libertine Christians and they think, what are you doing? This is not how you're supposed to live. I live this way. You shouldn't live this way. And there's no respect there. I know of professing Christians who live their lives in a defeated and depressed state. They're deflated. There's no joy in Christ there. There's kind of a woe is me. Christians who should have a joy in Christ and a, a wonderment at what Jesus has done for them and of what they have in Christ, no matter what struggles they have faced or are facing, there should be an awe and a wonderment of what God has done for them, and yet they have this defeated, deflated spirit. And you know who wants to hang around that person? Nobody. Christian or non-Christian. Some professing Christians are avoided, ridiculed, mistreated because they deserve to be. I read something in Reader's Digest many years ago that really, really upset me. Now this is, and this was an old, old issue, and you can tell by the story I'm going to read to you. They mentioned a typewriter. You know, a what? A typewriter. I, I hate reading this to you. I hate that this was put in a national magazine for all the world to, to read. This was in the campus comedy section. So, funny stuff that happens on college campuses. Quote, My new roommate at Baptist Bible College in Clark Summit, Pennsylvania. So this is a, 
a Bible college. I know guys who graduated from here. What's that? Did you graduate from there? I know you didn't write this, so. so. You're off the hook here, Rita. You and Bob are off the hook here. I knew you'd never write this. My new roommate at Baptist Bible College in Clarksburg, Pennsylvania. See, I could tell the whole world who, what this institution was. Had been valedictorian of her high school class. Since I was a cheerleader with more social than academic skills, I worried about a possible clash in our personalities. Soon, though, we decided on an equitable arrangement. She would help me with my schoolwork, and I would help her make friends. The rest of that year, things seemed to be going great. I'd often return to the dorm at night to find she'd typed a paper for me. In exchange, I would take her with me to parties, introducing her to lots of people. Do you guys have parties in your day, Rita? Parties all the time? I went to Bible college. I don't remember one party. It wasn't like secular college where you're partying. There's no partying at Bible colleges, at least not that I know of. Were you guys, were you guys big partiers? Rita? We'll talk later. Get the, get the skinny on this. Yeah, you don't do that at Bible college. In exchange, I would take her with me to parties, introducing her to lots of people. But then one evening, I found my typewriter in the hall with a note attached. I have enough friends now. Write your own papers. You see a problem there? What have I just told everyone who reads this section of Reader's Digest? That Christians at Christian colleges cheat. Now, if this woman and her roommate are cheaters, that's bad enough. But don't tell the whole world about it. You know, we wonder why unsaved people don't take us seriously. Why we have no impact on the people around us. Why people we know are not drawn to Christ. Why Christianity has so little respect in the world. We wonder that. Read this kind of thing and you go, I guess I don't have to wonder. Because we're telling everyone we're just like them. There's no holiness in our life. We're not following Christ. We're just doing what everyone else does. Folks, tracing the pattern of and following on the heels of Jesus Christ will mean living a holy life before the world. If you're mistreated, make sure it's because you're living like Christ, not because you're living sinfully and you deserve to be treated that way. Number two, our suffering should always generate pure responses. Look at verse 22. Again, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. When we're suffering or being mistreated, one of our first responses may be verbal. We respond verbally. And Peter's addressing that here. If that's how you're going to respond, let's talk about that. First of all, we should never respond deceitfully. Was no deceit was found in his mouth. If we're going to follow the example of Christ, trace out his steps, follow him, we don't lie. There's no deceit there. In fact, the, uh, the older translations translate this guile. No guile was found in his mouth, which is actually maybe a, a better term. No deception. He had no deception about him. She had no guile about her. She was what she was. She didn't, she didn't mask herself one way, and she was something else. Now, what you see is what you get. 
No deception. This, this word deception, deceit, guile, uh, originally referred to fish bait. Is a, a fish is deceived by bait, by a worm-adorned hook. There's deception there. When mistreated by others, we may be tempted to deceive. Maybe, maybe if I misrepresent myself by acting like the unsaved, I can avoid persecution. If I just misrepresent, I put on a veneer of I'm just like you. Certainly then I'm not going to be persecuted. That's lying. If you're really a believer, that is. If you're really a believer. Maybe we should lie about what we do on the weekends. What we do on Sundays. Yeah, I, I, I you know, your guy you're working with. Yeah, I, I, got, I got hammered this weekend. Yeah, I had a couple too. And we just act like they do. We did this on Sunday. Yeah, I did something similar. Never mentioning we go to church. Maybe we should lie about what we do with our time. What, are, what entertainment we enjoy. What our value system is. Maybe, like Peter, we should just openly deny Jesus. Lie. See, Peter knows what it means to be deceptive uh, when persecution comes. Because he lied three times. So he understands personally what not to do. Folks, there should be no guile. Secondly, we should never speak abusively. It says here, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Jesus was constantly suffering verbal abuse. His enemies called him a Samaritan, a glutton, a wine-bibber, a blasphemer, a demonic. They accused him of being in league with the devil, of being a perverter of the nation, and of being a deceiver of the people. When he was insulted and falsely accused and mistreated and reviled, he never once responded in kind. He didn't do what they did. Certainly there were times when Jesus spoke frankly and severely to his critics, to his enemies, but he never did so out of sinful anger or in retaliatory abuse. He wasn't abusive in response. He was clear, he was honest, he was open. What he said was the truth. Never was he abusive to people. When we suffer at the hands of others, we must never respond with deception, insults, or threats. Folks, trace out the pattern of Christ and be in lockstep with him and take the lumps. Just take the lumps. If you're following Christ, there will be lumps, clearly. Take the lumps and speak kindly, truthfully, uprightly in response. Now maybe that Peter, not only knowing Christ and knowing his own sin, his own uh, denial of Christ and his deception, knowing all that, he writes this under the, as he's being moved by the Spirit of God. But he may also have uh, Isaiah 53 kind of in the back of his mind, which was just read. Verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah, uh, of Isaiah 53. We like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He may be referencing this too. 
never was deceit or threats, any kind of abuse found from his lips, no matter what he was facing. Thirdly, our suffering should always be fueled by a God focus. Look at the end of verse 23. But, so he didn't revile, he didn't threaten, didn't talk back, didn't abuse, but instead now, end of verse 23, continued, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He entrusted himself. This is a really neat word, entrusted. It means to hand over something. So when he's mistreated, when he's threatened, when he's reviled, when he was abused, he would hand all of that over to the Father. Entrusted it to God the Father, who is just and right, who will always do right, who will deal with this situation in the best possible way. He will hand over this trial and these people who are berating him. He'll hand them over to the one who will always just rightly, who, who will right every wrong. Folks, if we're going to handle suffering the right way, it is essential that we understand the fact that God is just and he will ultimately right all the wrongs. So if you're mistreated for, the, for your faith, you can revile in return, you can abuse in return. But when that happens, what we ought to do, what we're commanded to do, is simply give it over to God. And let that soothe your soul. You may have a perspective, I've been wronged here. I did the right things, I told the truth, I was honest, I was upright, and I've been wronged. And you may have a sense of, um, a sense of justice that says, therefore, I'm going to respond. <laughs> and the point here is, when that occurs... Well, there may be times when you have to defend yourself. I understand that. When you do it, you do it the right way. You don't revile and you don't abuse. But what Jesus did when he was mistreated was he simply took the focus off of the situation, the individuals, the threats, took his focus off of himself and what he was experiencing, and where did he set his focus? On the one who will handle all the wrongs. And he just handed it over to the Father. God will deal with this in his time, in his way, and there will be, in the end, perfect justice. So I don't have to worry about it, and I won't worry about it. Instead of focusing on the wrong I feel, I'm going to focus on tracing out the Christ and following in every step. That's where my focus is going to be. And I'm going to lay everything else on the, on the Father, let him deal with it in his time. It's not mine to deal with. Sometimes we are told that there's therapeutic value in venting our anger. You know, if you don't want to get an ulcer, just let her rip when things happen to you. <laughs> just vent. And then other times we're told just the opposite. Hold it in. You know, Peter says nothing of these things. Don't vent, obviously. And don't hold it in. What do you do? I'm not holding it into me. What am I doing? I'm giving it over to God. 
I'm, I'm, I'm giving it to him. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm not going to get an ulcer over this. I'll let God handle it in his time. If we're going to handle trials this way, we need to remember Romans chapter 8, verse 28. All things work together for good. All things. The good times, the easy times, the comfortable times, the challenging times, the painful times, the times when we're persecuted for the sake of Christ. All things work together for good to them who love God and to them who are called according to his purpose. You can hand it all over to the Father and let him handle it. So, we are called to suffer like Christ when suffering for Christ. First of all, when you're suffering, when you're being mistreated by someone, someone's on your case, someone's ridiculing you, someone's attacking you, ask the question, do I deserve this? Am I being beaten up? Am I being mistreated? Am I being wronged because I deserve it? Maybe I do. Or, no, I'm, I'm, I'm being treated this way because my walk with Christ is what it should be. And then, are you, how are you responding? Are you responding in anger? Are you responding the way you need to need to respond, as Christ Christ would respond? And what's your focus? It's got to be the Christ and the Father. You know, there's this dual focus. I'm going to follow Christ. I'm going to trace Him out, and I'm going to hand everything over to the Father. That's what we need to do when we're suffering for the sake of our Savior. Thank you, Father, for. This clear text that's so helpful to us. We know we've had an easy time in this country. We know that there are believers around the world who have not. There are Christians around the world who have suffered all of their lives and who will until the day they die. They're mistreated for their, the cause of Christ. They're held down because of their commitment to Christ. And some, many, have died and will die because of their commitment to Christ. That's new to us. But Father, help us to purpose in our hearts to follow what we find in this text, to trace out our Savior, to follow every step, and to hand over our struggles to you and let you handle them, let you deal with them in your time. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. We love him. We praise things in his name. Amen.